CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm Michael Shoulder, and I have just read a book that's going to help me become a better parent, which is strange because the kids in this book didn't turn out too well. They're the Corleone kids, first introduced to America more than 40 years ago in Mario Puzo's bestseller, The Godfather. Now Puzo's family has given its blessing to author Ed Falco. He's written a prequel to The Godfather series. It's called The Family Corleone. Set in New York, 1933, prohibition is ending, but Americans are still struggling to claw their way free of the Great Depression. And from this setting rise two families, one Italian, one Irish, both fighting very hard, very violently for power in Brooklyn. Ed Falco joins us not from Brooklyn, but from Time Warner headquarters on, and perhaps this is appropriate, Columbus Circle. (laughs) Ed Falco, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Well, a a friend of mine who spent many years working very closely with Francis Ford Coppola tells me that Coppola always felt The Godfather was not a story first and foremost about the mafia. Coppola felt it was a story about family dynamics. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Vito Corleone and his relationship to his children, that's the the heart of the story. Uh, The the mafia, the the criminal elements... uh, provide an element of uh, drama and excitement, but really it's about Vito and his family. You know, the, the first thing that struck me about your book is I read the dedication, and, and it pretty near choked me up. And if you have the book with you, I'd like you to read that dedication because it really does tell us a lot, certainly about your family. Okay, I'd be happy to. For my father and his family, his six brothers and two sisters, the Falcos of Ainsley Street, Brooklyn, New York, and for my mother and her family, the Catapanos and Espositos from the same neighborhood, all of whom, the children of Italian immigrants, made good and decent lives for themselves and their families and their children and their children's children, among whom are doctors, lawyers, teachers, athletes, artists, and just about everything else. And for our neighborhood family doctor in the 40s and 50s, Pat Franzese, who came to our house when we were sick and took care of us, often for free or for what little might be offered with love and every good wish and respect. You captured so much in that, so many generations of, of, as you've put it, hard work and determination to make a better life or provide a better life for your children and your children's children. Uh, how long did it take you to write that dedication? It actually came pretty, pretty fast. Uh, it, they were... Uh, feelings that I've, I, I was grateful to have a chance to express. You know, I'm pretty amazed at the way things have gone for the subsequent generations of, uh, of, of my family, among whom are some pretty re- remarkable uh, people. Uh, and there is a sense of gratitude to those hardworking immigrants who made this possible for subsequent generations. You know, I only wish my father were alive to hear this interview because, first of all, he was a huge Godfather fan. Second of all, you would have appreciated him. He was a stand-up comedian, and, <laughs> and he, he was. He was a you know, professional stand-up comic, worked in front of a lot of Italian audiences, and actually he used to talk about his upbringing, which was in East Harlem, which he used to joke was 98% Italian, 2% Jewish. Somebody had owned the buildings. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, uh, he, would have, he would have loved this, uh, but... Well, you know what? Let me let me take a step back then, because because for those people, I mean, for in my case, I actually went and read The Godfather for the first time. I'd seen the movies, I'd never read the book, mm-hmm. and so this morning I was telling my young son about 
who I was interviewing, and I told him, I'm interviewing this author about a story. It's about an Italian-American immigrant named Vito Corleone who built a kind of empire. And he asked, did Vito Corleone come over here with a lot of money? I said, no. He said, then how did he become so rich? It's great. Can, can you give my son an answer? Well, they came over here, uh, Italian-Americans. Now, I'm not talking about the Corleone or the five families, but Italian-Americans came over here um, with uh, a lot of ambition and desire and a willingness to work extraordinarily hard and with certain values that, that emphasized the family. So they were willing to work and do whatever was necessary so that their children could do better, and then their children carried those values forward. Um, so that the stories, I mean, it's not just Italian-Americans, it's every uh, generation of immigrants. Um, they come here and they, they work hard for their families, and their families go on and, and inherit the, uh, the American dream. Uh, yeah, I have nothing but respect for that. I know the research I did was kind of shocking when I understood the level of xenophobia, the level of antagonism toward immigrants. Italian-Americans were, around the turn of the century, they were despised. They were widely, widely hated. Uh, you remember in the novel that there's a, I, co I go back to the largest mass lynching in U.S. history. I always say this, I, I tell people, you know, you know where the largest mass lynching in U.S. history was? And they say, no, but they assume it's African Americans. No, it was, it was Italians. There were, Italians were, were, were hung from, from lampposts, I think 13 of them simultaneously. And uh, President Roosevelt's response to it, his response to that mass execution was, quote, it was probably a very good thing. So the level of antipathy toward Italian-Americans is shocking. So they had to face formidable obstacles and uh, formidable, for, formidable antagonism. There's also that level of respect for what they managed to accomplish. And so the way you're telling this story, I really am looking at the family Corleone for a little role modeling for myself because ambition, desire, determination to make it better for your children, uh, where did it go wrong? Well, Vito makes the wrong choices, uh, and for me, that's the heart of the novel. He's a, he's a fascinating character, and I think of him as a tragic character, in that his values are admirable, but the means he chooses to achieve the end corrupts everything, so that all that he wants for his family winds up coming to naught. He loves Michael, he loves, he loves Sonny, he loves Fredo, he loves his children, and look at what happens to all of them in the, in the long run. And that's because he, he chooses to be a law unto himself. Um, he chooses to look the other way toward crimes, toward extortion and, and murder, which he views as necessary evils. And there is a kind of rationale at work, and that is that that goes all the way back to understanding the role of Sicilians um, living in a nation that would have been habitually conquered by a long line of foreign powers so that they formed a network of clans. And within the clan, they were a law unto themselves. Um, that carries over when they come to the United States, and they don't think of the government as something that represents them. They think of the government as an obstacle to be overcome. And so they make their own way. They, they, they have their own laws. They have their own code of justice. Uh, at heart, it's a corrupt one, um, and that's the tragedy. Uh, having, having accepted that code of ethics, um, the end is the destruction of all the things he means to 
uh, he means to value and he means to save. And for me, that's the, that's the sadness at the center of the story. Ed, for those people who are not completely immersed in the culture of the Godfather and the Corleone family, bring us up to speed on who this family is and the importance of the saga. Sure. Well, Mario Puzo's 1969 novel spent uh, over a year on the number one position in the New York Times bestseller list and sold 22 million copies in hardcover. It was a phenomenal publishing success. Um, and that book then got turned into three movies, two of which are considered classics of American cinema. So that we are at a point uh, 25 years after the original publication of the novel where the story of the family Corleone, the Corleone family, is American mythos, uh, where almost everybody has either read the book, seen the movie, or at least caught pieces of the movie on television. And even if there's a handful of people who know nothing about it, the, it has so worked its way into American culture that everybody knows something about The Godfather at this point. So give us, give us your run-through of the key characters and what is unique about them and what's important for us to know. Well, Vito Corleone is the patriarch of the family, and then you have his sons, uh, Sonny, Michael, and Fredo, and his daughter, Connie, and they, they are the, the family. Um, and uh, Vito is a, uh, uh, an immigrant who sort of accidentally finds his way into the world of organized crime, he becomes a great um, authority in his neighborhood and eventually emerges as uh, one of the most powerful figures in the entire New York City criminal underworld. And we watch his evolution from uh, an, uh, an immigrant to a crime lord, and that's essentially the story of The Godfather. And set the scene for your book. You come into the picture when? What has already happened, and where do you pick it up? I come into the story approximately 10 years before the Godfather novel and movies pick up. They happen in 1945, and my story is set in 1933 primarily, so a dozen years before the, um, before the Godfather. And while the movies, those whose viewers who have seen the movies will remember that in the second movie there's flashbacks to the... Um, to Vito coming into the country and getting involved in crime, there's a gap of some dozen years in which we don't know what happens. And it's in those dozen years that Vito goes from being a neighborhood family figure to being the most powerful figure in the underworld. Um, and this story, my story, the prequel, is the story of what happens and how he comes to such power. And it's also the story of the end of prohibition and how the powers that be sort of get readjusted after the Prohibition era and move more into so many more mainstream areas of American culture. And it's also a story about a battle between two immigrant groups, the Italians and the Irish, in a very particular part of New York. Tell us about that. Well, you know, this was just completely fascinating to me when I started doing the research on the history of the period. In approximately five years, the Italian crime families literally wipe out every major Irish gangster in New York. Um, the Irish, if you, if you remember your history in Tammany Hall, the Irish run the city. I mean, they run New York. They run it from the governmental level down to the street level, from the unions to the elected offices. Um, New York is one sort of Irish family, 
and uh, a lot of criminal activities are mixed up with legitimate activities, um, and the city runs pretty smoothly. Uh, then the Italians come in, and in a very short order, they, they take over uh, everything that was uh, the Irish domain beforehand. The Irish, on the other hand, move up. They become cops and lawyers and judges. Uh, so there's a very interesting uh, evolution here. But I was particularly interested in that period in which the organized figures in the five families went after the Irish and simply got rid of them because they were too, creating too much trouble, they were too extravagant, they weren't organized enough, the Italians were better organized, and they wanted to be quiet and behind the scenes. So the Dutch Schultzes and the Legs Diamonds, um, the Mad Dog Calls, um, all of the Irish families get wiped out. Um, and so I have some sympathy with them, and I think if you read uh, a careful reading of the novel, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see some sympathy for that, um, that kind of war in which they're, they're, they're eliminated. And to take over a domain in that kind of war requires an almost iconic act of violence. Describe for me an iconic act of violence that really left an impression on you from Puzo's work and Francis Ford Coppola's work, and describe for me an iconic act of violence that you created for the family Corleone. Well, there's extraordinary violence going on in the real world at the time. Some of the crimes I read about were just shocking in their, in their um, brutality. And in fact, I think every, uh, every violent scene in my novel has some historical precedent. Um, there's one particularly gruesome scene in my novel where a character is blinded, um, he's beaten up, and then there's a blindfold put over him, and that it leads to blindness. I don't want to give too much away. It's a particularly violent, gruesome scene. But that uh, actually comes out of the history of, 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 of Vincent Call. Vincent Call supposedly did that to, he was a brutal torturer and murderer from the period. He did that to, to somebody, and it turns up a couple of places in the history. Uh, Mario Puzo's horsehead scene of violence um, was, I'm pretty sure, invented. I didn't read about that or find that anywhere else. However, several of his other scenes of violence, I know he did the same research because I came across the same things. For instance, that scene in the where Paulie Gatto in the movie, where Paulie Gatto is murdered, they pull over to the side of the road, um, and uh, Clemenza gets out of the car to relieve himself, and while he's out of the car, the guy in the back seat shoots Paulie Gatto in the back of the head, and then that famous line where Clemenza says, you know, leave the gun, take the cannolis. Um, that scene actually is a little bit out of crime lore history also. Um, it happened in Chicago, happened with a different set of gangsters, uh, but it happened pretty much the same way, except I'm pretty sure there were no cannolis involved. <laughs> I do think that um, I had heard that uh, that, uh, that line was improvised on the spot, uh, which is pretty amazing. And so I guess that violent imagination isn't purely a figment of, of your imagination and Mario Puzo's and Francis Ford Coppola's. No, it's a brutal world. There is a. I'll give you, give me an, uh, uh, an opportunity to vent here just a little bit. One reviewer of the book uh, said, "You know, uh, it's a engaging, fascinating novel, but the violence in it. You know, do people like that really exist in this world?" That was in my local newspaper, uh, and then that that came out on a Sunday. The next day, on page three, the headline was 50 bodies found headless and armless in New in Mexico." 
and you know, of course that's part of the Mexican drug wars going on and the and the uh, the liquor wars during prohibition are an exact parallel and the violence was was brutal then and it is it is now and yes such people exist in the world so let's just tell that reviewer we thank you at falco for to- <laughs> for toning down the violence <laughs> so uh let me ask you Ed, um why is it that you chose to focus on sunny and luca in this book when the original Godfather focused to such a great extent on Vito and Michael. What was it about Sonny and Luca? Well, let me start with Luca. Uh, Luca gave me a chance again to explore a kind of character who's who's interesting to me. It's the savagery under a mask of civility. And that's what the character of Luca provided me an opportunity to think about, um, this evolution of of the monster. So he was a character who fit with all of the things I was interested in exploring. As for Sonny versus Michael, well, it's sort of the same issue that Mario Puzo explored. Uh, Michael doesn't want to join the uh, family, but then is drawn into the family, and uh, this is a heartbreak to Vito Corleone. So that by dealing with Sonny, I can deal directly with the same issue. Vito also didn't want Sonny in the family, but Sonny, unlike Michael, he wanted to be in the family. But the central conflict is the same. Vito's resistance to having Sonny in the family, Sonny's insistence on being in the family, and the consequences of that act. Sonny, for me, changes dramatically as a character, though maybe not uh, in ways that are obvious to everybody. But it seems to me in the beginning of the novel, Sonny is a kind of almost innocent. He's involved in crime. But it's like a game with him and his him and his friends. But in order to really join the life of the family, something terrible happens, uh, and he does something terrible. And I think at that final scene, he's a different man than he was when he started the the novel. And there's something tragic about that. A, a man you think Puzo could have imagined? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I think he did imagine him. I, you know, Puzo was criticized for romanticizing violence and for romanticizing the ma- the mafia, which was something that he always hated. Um, he says he, he wished he had been more obvious about it, but, you know, he understands that the history of the mafia has led to, uh, has led to nothing but uh, heartbreak and destruction. And um, when you read his novel and you see all the terrible things that happen, uh, one should understand this is not exactly a way of life that's romantic or that should be romanticized. Um, and I don't feel like I'm romanticizing it either. I think that if you, a careful reading of the novel, when you finish the reading of the novel, you say everything that Vito wanted has come to has come to naught. Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, I don't hit you over the head with a sledgehammer and say, you know, this was, these are not good choices. But I think a careful reading of the novel will hopefully lead a reader to see I'm not romanticizing anything. So t- tell us about Sonny Corleone a little bit from your perspective and, and if you could have gone one way or another in terms of the choices he made any way along the line, you know, wh- or did you feel you channeled him and you channeled him accurately, were there other choices that you were considering having him make? Well, Sonny is fascinating to me. Um, and uh, this is purely personal. He reminds me of about three of my uncles. Um, just a funny wonderful guy to be around, a tough guy, and uh, my uncles are mostly gone, so they won't hear this. Not terribly smart, but good-hearted. 
Uh, so I'm, I liked Sonny, and I wanted to explore his, his character. And I wanted to imagine how he changed. You sort of suggested we might look at this in terms of issues of fathers and sons. And so what fascinated me was that Vito is a good man to his family, and they adore him, and they want to be like him. So Sonny, who's not, you know, he's not brilliant, but he's, but he's got a good heart, uh, he wants to be, he wants to please his father. And wanting to please his father brings him into the life of the family, which we, as everybody who's seen the movies know, knows leads to a terrible uh, violent end. But the father, so, Vito, wouldn't, wouldn't he have wanted Sonny to pursue a different path? Absolutely, and, and that's the conflict within Vito's character. He doesn't want any of his children to follow his path. He, wanted, he wants um, uh, Sonny, in my book, he wants him to pursue a career in the automotive industry because he sees this as a coming thing. But Sonny doesn't want to work for a living. <laughs> he doesn't want to be a garage mechanic and learn the business of the, uh, the automobile business from the ground up. He wants to be his father. And so his love for his father draws him into the family. So here's the lesson for parenting, and I struggle with this all the time. You, you can t talk until you're blue in the face. Your kids might stop listening, but they don't stop watching. Is that the fundamental the, problem here? The, absolutely. The, the, the Vito Corleone's life provides a model that his children who adore him want to emulate. And wanting to emulate who he is, not who he says you should be, is what leads them to their fates, every one of them. Um, they, you know, there's a scene in the novel where Michael, who is very early on rejecting his father's way of life, Michael's the smartest of the, of the sons. He can look at his father's way of life and say, this is wrong, I will have nothing to do with this. But there's a scene where his father, he confronts his father and he tells him indirectly, I understand what you're doing and I'm not gonna be like that. Now, of course, it's subtext. It's not said directly. But if you read the scene with any sensitivity, you understand that that's what Michael's doing. And they're eye to eye. And, and Vito leans toward him, and Michael embraces him anyway because he's his father. Um, and for me, that's a tragic moment in the, in the story. Michael could have made different choices and tried to make different choices, but his love for his father draws him into the business, which eventually destroys his life. You know, it's a strange, it's a strange parents' fantasy. I just realized it. <laughs> I want to have the authority over my family that Vito Corleone had. Although, it, as I think about it, it turns out he really didn't have the authority over his family, did he? Well, I think he had certainly arbitrary authority. I don't think anyone would ever question him. I don't think anyone would ever uh, oppose him in the family, not without dire consequences. Michael is as close as you come, where he, where he, he doesn't have the control he thinks he has. Um, because he can't control the entire culture um, and, and the way the world is changing and uh, his real position in the world, which is in reality as a criminal, as much as he wants to think of himself as U.S. steel or as a corporation, um, he's not. He's a criminal enterprise. But, but I guess, and I, I don't, again, I don't want to overdo the father analogy, but, but I'm thinking you're a father and this man had such an ability, that this godfather had such an ability to control events that were beyond most people's control, but he could not control the choices his children made. No, uh, and certainly in Sonny's instance and in, and in Michael's instance, he wanted them to make different choices. Yeah, so his control is limited, you're right. 
they may not uh, oppose him arbitrarily, uh, but the events of their lives are going to go in a way that uh, are oppose what he wanted. Yes, you're right. Is there a scene you want to point us to that sort of is emblematic of, of what you think you accomplished in this book? Yeah, there are a couple of scenes I especially like in the book. I like Luca Brasi's evolution from a disturbed and dangerous individual into a complete monster. I like the moment when Sonny Corleone confronts his father and says, I know who you are. You're a gangster. Why do you have to pretend to be somebody different? And Vito, uh, looking at himself a moment later in the, in the rearview mirror of a truck and seeing as if there are two people, uh, a set of eyes looking back to him, it's not quite his set of eyes. Uh, for me, these scenes suggest the duality of, uh, of Vito's nature, both the good guy, the family man, and the darker side. Um, I tried to create all the way through the novel a linkage between the monster Luca Brasi and the good family man Vito Corleone. And I wanted to suggest that they were flip sides of the same coin, that Vito's choices stem from a darker part of himself that might be more accurately represented by somebody like, like Luca. In the final scene of the, of the book, when, they're, when the family is gathering, Luca is standing on one side of the, fam, of the big wedding gathering, and Vito Corleone is standing on the other side. And they look at each other across the crowd, and they're both holding oranges. Now, I don't expect everybody to know the symbol of the orange from the movie, but those who do know, will know that the orange is Francis Ford Coppola's symbol for, for, for death. Whenever an orange turns up in the, in, in the movies, and whenever an orange turns up, something bad is about to happen. Um, it's, it's a symbol that Coppola created. So it's not important that you know this symbol at that final scene, but both men are holding oranges. They're looking at each other across the courtyard. Luca takes a savage bite of the orange, and the juice drips down his face, and Vito takes a dainty bite of the orange and wipes his mouth. It's the same orange. They're both biting into the same orange. Um, and I mean to suggest that, that they are flip sides that neither can exist without the other. I, I hope that comes across to some, to some readers because what I'm really interested in underneath it all is the duality of human nature, the good and bad in all of us, the conflict between what you were describing earlier, Michael, is the desire to have complete power and do whatever you want and the, and the desire to be good, whatever that means. Gotcha. Well, well, on the theme of monsters, and uh, of course, this interview is sponsored by the American Citrus Foundation. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, we will. <laughs> but very um, few of us, I mean, the way you just described the transition uh, from a disturbed and dangerous individual to a complete monster, do all of us have that monster deep down inside of us? I haven't found it. Um, I believe we all have a dark side, and I'm grateful for you and everybody else in the world who's not in touch with it. <laughs> but, but I do think it's there. I think it's probably, it's probably brought to the surface in moments of crisis, um, in moments uh, where you're tested. But yeah, the history of, of humankind 
would suggest that we all have some savagery in us. See, see, but when some people are tested, they rise to the occasion, and some people find their inner monster. What, what makes the difference? Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> so, so if you do a sequel and, and you, you figure that out, then that's going to be in the self-help category. <laughs> no, if I figure that out, I'll start writing nonfiction and explaining to everybody. As a fiction writer, I just explore the issue, and I, I leave it to others to, to come up with answers. One last question. Sure. I mean, you immersed yourself in this violence. You tapped into your, your violent imagination. Does it ever haunt you? I am haunted by that sense of, um, of, of violence, and, um, and um, I'm grateful that I have creative outlets where I can focus it so I can write about, I can write about violence. And I've been writing about violence my whole career, which is a, a career of some length at this point. Um, I've published some 10 books. So I've been writing about violence, and I've been writing about corruption, and I've been exploring those issues in my writing for, uh, for a long time, and I'm grateful that I have that, that outlet. Uh, because I have that outlet, in my real life, I can be a nice guy or do my best to be a nice guy. That's good. Although, now that you acknowledge uh, this violent imagination, I, I, I am happy that I'm interviewing you from the safety <laughs> of my booth here in CNN Atlanta. But you know who that reminded me of when you talked about your violent imagination? Um, I just opened The Godfather, the original Godfather, to Chapter mm-hmm. 1. Amerigo Bonacera sat in a New York criminal court number 3 and waited for justice vengeance on the men who had so cruelly hurt his daughter who had tried to dishonor her and this of course leads to his appeal to the godfather and to somebody who could make it right and in some ways it sounds like that's where your violent imagination is rooted in that shy boy who who grew up in a neighborhood where shyness wasn't so great an asset yeah absolutely um and that wonderful <clears throat> that wonderful scene with Amerigo is a, a distillation of the whole, the whole system of clan justice that comes from Sicily. You can never trust the outside government to represent you, to treat you fairly, to give you justice. You have to go to the family. You have to go to the padre, to the father, and he will give you justice. You're not prescient, but if you could send an orange to a Hollywood producer. <laughs> I would send it to the executives at the Paramount and say, this would make another good movie, don't you think? Delivery from Florida coming soon. (laughs) Final question. Should this be turned into a movie? Uh, Is there some chance that Francis Ford Coppola would try his hand at at another godfather? Um, Of course, I don't know. But I do think Francis Ford Coppola is, is a completely brilliant filmmaker. And he's still making brilliant movies. And I can't imagine anybody who knows the story better um, I think that this would... I know that Coppola and Puzo wanted to make a fourth Godfather movie, and they went to Paramount, and Paramount, after the m- third movie, didn't want to make a fourth movie. Uh, but I think this would be a, a nice conclusion to that series. Uh, I hope, if I wrote the book I intended to, I hope that this movie only ma- this book would only make the movies and the books that follow fuller. Uh, for instance, in The Godfather, um, Luca Brasi is a terrifying character in the movies, but you never know why he's loyal to Vito, and you never know why he's so dangerous. Um, having read the prequel, you'll know why he's so dangerous, and you'll know why he's so loyal to Vito. Uh, so I think the I hope the prequel only helps uh, fill out and make uh, deeper the movies and the 
the book that follows. And so in a nutshell, if Francis Ford Coppola is listening right now and you had a chance to address him for the elevator pitch, what would you say to uh, him? Francis, give me a call. Let's talk about things. <laughs> I think you'd be a great director for this movie. And pronounce it properly for me. Give me the correct pronunciation. The Italian pronunciation is Corleone, uh, but the American is Corleone, and in every, every movie, every uh, conversation, people use both of them. Ed Falco, author of The Godfather prequel called The Family Corleone or Corleone, uh, thank you for joining us at CNN Profiles. Thank you, Michael. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking with you.